0: Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine podcast series. This is Carolina Mendez, today's host, and Internal Medicine PGY3 at the University of Connecticut. A quick disclaimer before we start. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. Today's episode is dedicated to two conditions that are commonly seen in the inpatient setting: diabetic ketoacidosis and hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state. We are pleased to welcome a very special guest, Dr. Asma Saida. Dr. Saida just completed her internal medicine training here at UConn, and stayed with us for her endocrinology fellowship as well. She's primarily interested in neuroendocrine tumors and diabetes and today she'll help us navigate a few extremely important topics. Asma,
1: thank you for coming and welcome to our podcast. Hi Carolina, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. I'm really happy to still be associated with my internal medicine family. Thank you. Yes, we're happy to have you. All right, let's get started. So,
0: although DKA and HHS are both acute complications of diabetes, each one has a
1: very distinct pathogenesis.
0: Can you please explain to us how they occur?
1: So, to understand the pathogenesis of DKA and HHS, it is important to know what exactly the role of insulin is insulin primarily facilitates storage of glucose as glycogen free fatty acids as triglycerides amino acids as as proteins and in addition it also inhibits some processes like glycogenolysis lipolysis proteolysis and gluconeogenesis and also ketogenesis so as we all know type 1 diabetes is due to insulin deficiency and type 2 diabetes is due to insulin resistance In DKA, which is a complication of type 1 diabetes, there is absolute deficiency of insulin and marked elevations in glucagon and other counter-regulatory hormones like catecholamines, growth hormone, etc. Mm -hmm. So this insulin deficiency leads to lack of inhibition of lipolysis and ketogenesis, thus resulting in ketoacidosis and increased anion gap metabolic acidosis. It also causes hyperglycemia by lack of inhibition of glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis. In addition, it also decreases the glucose utilization by the tissues. So we have both increased glucose and acidosis. So why don't we see the
0: acidosis component in HHS? So yeah,
1: HHS is a complication of type 2 diabetes mellitus where there is where the insulin is present but it's just not sufficient enough. There is more of insulin resistance. The residual insulin secretion and its systemic activity in HHS is sufficient to minimize the development of ketoacidosis, but it is not adequate enough to control hyperglycemia. This is because the suppression of lipolysis and ketogenesis is more sensitive to insulin than the inhibition of gluconeogenesis. So we do have hyperglycemia, but we do not have any acidosis.
0: That was a great summary. Thank you. And how do you actually diagnose DKA and
1: HHS? So both DKA and HHS have hyperglycemia in common and also hyperosmolality. In HHS, the blood glucose levels are usually over 600 mg per deciliter, and the serum osmolality is greater than 320 miosmol per kilogram. Whereas in DKA, the blood glucose levels range between 350 to 500, and in some special cases, the glucose levels are normal, which we call euglycemic DKA another important component of dka is the acidosis so we do have anion gap metabolic acidosis and elevation in serum ketones and urine ketones beta hydroxybutyrate is the keto acid that we measure and when the levels are greater than 3 millimol per liter it is suggestive of dka
0: and can you just remind us of some potential precipitating factors for these conditions so we know that acute illness is a common one but there are other several predisposing circumstances that we don't always take into consideration.
1: So like you said, acute illnesses like heart attacks, stroke, any kind of infection do precipitate DKA. And other than this, insulin non-compliance or sometimes inadequate dosing of insulin or people who are on pumps, they can have malfunctioning of the pump, which can put them into decay. Another common scenario is where people who are not diagnosed with diabetes, they come with an initial presentation of DKA. And some of the medications, like the antipsychotics,
0: lithium, and SGLT2 inhibitors too, right? Like you mentioned, the euglycemic DKA. Right. And then, so I think for the management part, I think we can break it down into a few subtopics. So let's talk about DKA first. How do you approach
1: these patients? The initial step in the management of DKA is to assess the patient's volume status and electrolyte levels we can break down the treatment into four components like fluids, potassium, insulin, and bicarbonate. Firstly, based on the volume status, if the patient is severely hypovolemic, administer normal saline at one liter per hour for the first two to three hours and then reassess the volume status. In case of mild hypovolemia and if the corrected sodium is normal or high, we give half normal saline at a rate of 250 to 500 cc per hour and if corrected sodium is low then the choice of fluid would be normal saline.
0: Yeah absolutely I agree the choice of fluids is very crucial. So after
1: that what's the next thing you assess? The next thing would be to look for the potassium levels. In case of hypokalemia with potassium levels below 3.3 milliequilins we hold off on the insulin and replace the potassium first until the potassium level is greater than 3.3 mEQ. And if the potassium level is in between 3.3 to 5.3 milliequivalents, then we give 20 to 30 milliequivalents of potassium in each liter of fluid that we're replacing until the potassium levels are between 4 and 5. And if the potassium levels are very high, like greater than 5.3, then you do not give any potassium and just monitor the potassium very frequently every 2 to 3 hours. Perfect.
0: And then interestingly, just now we're
1: actually discussing initiating insulin, correct? Correct, yes. So coming to the insulin part, we... Always, in case of DKA, we give regular insulin intravenously at a rate of 0.1 units per kilogram per hour. And when the glucose levels fall below 200 milligrams and the gap is still not closed, then we decrease the rate of insulin to 0.02 to 0.05 units per kilogram per hour and change the fluid to D5 half normal saline to maintain the blood glucose levels between 150 to 200 units until the anion gap completely closes. Um, the last component of DKE management is to assess the need for bicarbonate. If the pH is less than 6.9, we administer dilute sodium bicarb every two hours until the pH goes above 7. And then, how does the HHS treatment differ? So the management of HHS is essentially the same, except that in HHS, we are not concerned about acidosis. What we look for for resolution of HHS is uh, the serum osmolality comes back to normal, and the glucose comes down at least below 300. Perfect. And then in your opinion,
0: how and where, in terms of level of care, should these patients be monitored? Because we know that this differs across our three
1: sites, right? Right right so what is crucial in the management of DK, especially is the monitoring of the lab especially the electrolytes because we are giving them insulin they're at a high risk of developing all these complications like hypokalemia hypoglycemia etc so it depends on the institution like if they have enough staffing to monitor the blood work frequently at a step down level then okay that's fine mm-hmm. but if they do not have enough staffing then A higher level like ICU would be preferred where they can monitor this you know adequately. Perfect I think that's a
0: great way to put it so let's say you are monitoring the patient either in step down or ICU you're trending their labs and then how do you identify
1: resolution of DKA? So to say that DKA has resolved what we look for is the anion gap when the anion gap is less than 12 the DKA is said to be resolved Once the gap closes, then we can transition and the patient is able to eat. That's another important thing. So the patient should be mentally alert and be able to eat without any nausea or vomiting. Mm -hmm. So once that happens, we can slowly transition the patient to subcutaneous insulin. So how we measure the dose is we either take the 24-hour insulin and then divide it into basal and bolus, or if the patient is not overtly uncontrolled, then we can go by his previous insulin regimen. Yeah, so sometimes uh, what we get called for is, hey, we have to downgrade the patients. The patient is still on the insulin rep, Can you transition them? Sometimes the patients are on very high insulin requirements. Even though their gap is closed, they're still requiring five units per hour of insulin. And it's difficult to transition those patients. This happens because of glucotoxicity. When they have glucotoxicity, they become insulin resistant. And how this resolves is continued insulin infusion and over the next 24 hours their insulin requirements go down and that would be a good time to transition them to subcutaneous insulin. So what we can do is you have really have to transfer the patient out of the ICU for a bed crunch, then what we can do is you can transition them to insulin drip on hyperglycemia protocol instead of the TKA protocol. So that way you do not require frequent lab monitoring. You just need to monitor the glucose you don't have to do the electrolytes as frequently. So that's a good thing to keep. Yeah, keep that's in good mind. for
0: us to run right cuz we're working in the ICU and we run into that a lot. So it's good to educate our resident that that's a possibility that's something that we can and should do. Right. So what are some of the potential complications
1: that we see in the patients uh, that have DKA and HHS? So like I kind of discussed the electrolyte abnormalities is one one of the complications that we see very mm-hmm. frequently and also because they're in insulin they can become hypoglycemic if you don't monitor their blood finger sticks as frequently as we want them. Another thing is that some people, due to osmolarity changes, this is usually seen in the kids, can have cerebral edema, pulmonary edema. So that's something to be aware of, although we don't see it in adult patients as often.
0: And then another thing, euglycemic DKA, it has become more and more common, right? And then the absence Mm -hmm. of over-hyperglycemia can really create some confusion there and the diagnosis can be missed. So can you just walk us through the pathophysiology behind it and then some common associations?
1: So one of the very common associations that we are seeing in recent times is euglycemic DKA induced by SGLT2 inhibitors because right. these medications are very commonly used not only for type 2 diabetes but also for cardiac reasons. Mm-hmm. So what happens in SGLT2 inhibitors is they inhibit the sodium and glucose transporter and cause glucosuria and in turn cause decrease in the glucose levels in the blood which causes decrease in insulin levels. So a well-compensated patient can tolerate this but when someone goes into a crisis like you know say acute illness or they are having stress like surgery then they are the insulin levels go down further and also remember that when someone is ill they don't eat as much so they don't have oral glucose as well so that way the lack of insulin as we talked about in the physiology it stimulates lipolysis ketogenesis and causes acidosis however the glucose levels are not as high because like we said they have glucosuria and also lack of intake so yeah that's kind of the complicated pathophysiology right. it's
0: complicated very interesting though um, i think we covered a lot today Again, thank you so much, Dr. Saida, for taking the time to share your knowledge with us today. And to our audience, thank you so much for joining, and we'll see you in our next episode.